Welcome to the newest episode of Box Office Culture. I am your host, Tony Nunes, Artistic Director here at the United Theater. Uh, today's show is going to be great. Today, we are bringing on Carly Callahan, our new Executive Director. I'm talking to her a lot about Broadway. I know, I know. This is a, a film show. What am I doing? Uh, she comes from Broadway. We are talking about movies, too, a little bit, but um, she has a very interesting story. She's worked on three incredibly interesting projects and a lot more beyond that. Um, so I'm talking to her about those projects specifically. We're talking a little about her work here at the United, what we're excited to be bringing and doing, and what the future holds for us here at the United. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up in a minute. But before that, I want to talk very briefly about the new movies playing here at the United and what's coming up. There are some exciting things in the works. Uh, obviously, it's Oscar season. We have this amazing award season film festival that has just started this past week. We're showing almost all of the major award-nominated movies from the Oscars for one-off screenings. Uh, that includes everything from Top Gun to Everything Where Everywhere All at Once to Leslie. Uh, we showed Elvis last week. Uh, I think there are 10 films in total, and there is a package you can buy that includes screenings of other films that we are showing interlaced. Um, and some of those films, I will tell you, this week we are opening The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser. We're really excited for this movie, this new A24 release. We have it for one week. One week. So if you want to see The Whale... You have one week. Holding over, very popular movie, very popular, 80 for Brady. I mean, this movie stars, I talked about it last last time, you know, Sally Field, Jane Fonda, um, Lily Tomlin, uh, Rita Moreno. This is this movie's killing it here. It, it really is. Um, you know, come, wear your Brady jersey, bring all of your, your friends. Uh, it, it's great. And we're holding this movie over for a couple more weeks. Also opening today or tomorrow or whenever this is airing on the 10th is Broker, a new movie, a new Korean film uh, from Neon. Uh, I love Korean cinema. Very excited to open and showcase as much Korean cinema as we can. Uh, so check that one out. Next week on the 17th, we're opening another exciting Oscar-themed uh, film release here. We're showing all of the Oscar short film nominated films all in one showcase so there's three programs here there there is the uh the live action shorts the animated shorts and the documentary shorts go to our website unitedtheater.org check out the schedule for these each one is is separate um but check these out the animated ones especially um a really good time i will warn you some of these are not kid friendly so uh just just heed that warning if you if you're like oh animated film showcase i'm gonna bring my kids to this uh maybe not appropriate for all ages so so check in on that first also opening next week ant-man quantumania uh new marvel movie looks really great it's had some great early reviews uh you can't go wrong with paul rudd i mean that guy is amazing right um so that's opening with a special sneak preview on Thursday the 16th at 7.30, and then it opens wide here on the 17th. Uh, and, and like I said, stay tuned also. We have a lot of great repertory films. We have When Harry Met Sally playing for one night only on Valentine's Day next week on the 14th. Uh, we're showing our United Rewind series. Our next film is A Night to Remember, you know, the original Titanic movie. Uh, that's showing on the 22nd. Um, and I'm really excited for this Oscar series that I talked about, but I, I'm I'm really excited for After Sun. Um, I've wanted to see this movie. I've not seen it from A24, and it's playing on the 23rd, one night only. It's a Thursday night, 7 p.m. Join us. Uh, I will be here. I'm very excited to see this one. And then on the 24th, we are opening, wait for it, Cocaine Bear. Yeah, look it up. All right, that's it. That's my preview. Now we're going to get on with the show and bring on Carly Callahan. Okay, joining us on today's show is a very special guest, uh, our new executive director here at the United Theater. I'm very excited to have her on to talk about 
where she comes from, some of the work she's done on Broadway, some of the exciting things she has in store for us here at the United. Um, so I'm going to welcome Carly Callahan. Thank you so much, Tony. It's so awesome to be here. No, this is great. Um, it's it's going to be fun to talk about some of these past projects that you've worked on, which <laughs> yes. are, are pretty big projects. Um, this is a film podcast, so a lot of what we're talking about today is is slightly film adjacent, um, mm. but a lot of it is Broadway. Um, and, you know, Broadway, film, Hollywood, it's all its all the same, really, right? It is. What's so interesting now, too, is that the way that IP is looked at is um, no longer, I think, just designated as being a theater project or a film project or, you know, whatever. There's, there's a kind of a, a fluidity in the way that IP is made and consumed, which I think is really interesting. And um, in some ways, the work that I've done previous to my time at the United is reflective of the United itself and its functionality and the way that, you know, film can be mixed in with live experience, with visual art, with, um, you know, all sorts of ways that we make art and we consume art and we think about creation. So in, uh, in a strange way, it all makes sense. And I, I do want to talk a little bit, for, I think we're going to start and we're going to talk about uh, one of your specific projects, mm-hmm. which comes from the world of film um, originally. And then I do want to talk a little bit about the intersection between film and Broadway a little bit mm-hmm. um, from your experience and, and you know how a lot of the new Broadway properties are coming directly from films and things like that. But, but let's start with this big project that you did um, I don't know what year did you do this? Twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. That yes. magical year. Um, all right. So the the project is Ratatouille, the TikTok musical. <laughs> yes. A um, little bit of a mouthful. No, but it's amazing. Uh, can you just give a primer on this and and your involvement on this project for anybody who has not heard of this? Absolutely. Project? This project, I have to say, is the one that to this day pulls on my heartstrings the most. It was, of course, you know, a very dark time for all of us. Broadway had shut down. And um, it, it was a moment of shock and then awe in the best of ways as we started to witness makers and creators from across the globe create work around a fictitious Broadway musical or musical, it wasn't a Broadway musical at the time, based on the IP that everyone knows and loves, the Ratatouille movie. And kind of the origin story of how it all happened was in August of 2020, Emily Jacobson, who is an elementary school teacher, recorded an ode to Remy on uh, TikTok. And this ode to Remy, which um, maybe we can play a snippet of at some point, is the ultimate earworm and um and the character of course is so beloved and the story of ratatouille which so many people know and love is uh the story of how in fact anyone can cook anyone can make something come to life in spite of the greatest of odds and so it was an interesting and serendipitous match that that story came to life again in the public consciousness, and certainly on TikTok, with Emily's ode to Ratatouille. So in the months to follow, um, another TikTok user, Daniel Mertzluft, who had achieved some fame in his grocery store musical composition, adapted and arranged uh, Emily's song as a Disney musical finale. Um, and we can play a bit of that. Yeah, it let's, was so- let's, let's hold for one second. Let's, let's play a clip from Emily's. Um, version Mm -hmm. and then from his version right after. Absolutely. Remy the Ratatouille, the rat of all my dreams. I praise you, my Ratatouille. May the world remember your name. Remy the Ratatouille, the rat of all my dreams. I praise you, oh Ratatouille. So 
this earworm started to become more fully fleshed out musically, of course, and the video received over a million views and spawned thousands of subsequent TikTok creations with a collaboration between theater students and singers and uh, scenic designers. I mean, every everything around making a musical was being made on TikTok. And it was this complete moment of uh, a viral creation. Um, and we, as part of it, I should explain who the we is. We is a company called Seaview Productions, which was founded in 2012 um, and is and was primarily a Broadway uh, producing company and since has ventured into the film and TV and digital space. Um, but the business of Seaview was largely Broadway. But this Ratatouille sensation was flagged to me and um, to the CEO of Seaview at the, uh, by my daughter, actually, um, who at the time was, my goodness, she was 12 years old. And she said, Mom, you've got to see what's going on around this, this Ratatouille musical on TikTok. And, you know, I knew about TikTok, of course, but I am, I'm not 12 years old, so I wasn't very, very well versed. But I started to look and and uh, Greg and I talked about it and, uh, you know, kind of started to imagine what would happen if this musical was given kind of the Broadway treatment. And uh, Greg masterfully was able to go in front of the powers that be at Disney Theatrical and um, pitched this this idea that we as representing the Broadway community had to meet the creative community of TikTok where they were and create a quote unquote Broadway musical around um, around this IP. So uh, Disney generously granted us the ability to do this. And we, over the course of, I believe it was 31 days, put together a full-scale Broadway musical, of course, virtually. Um, it was largely recorded on phones. Uh, we engaged the Broadway Symphonetta, which is a BIPOC group of female musicians um, who recorded this incredible, fully orchestrated soundtrack in person. Um, and Lucy Moss of Six Frame was the director. Michael Breslin and Patrick Foley adapted the film um, and... Uh, Dan Mertzliff we brought on as the music supervisor, and uh, it, this thing started to come to life in real time. Um, we then engaged talents that were Broadway level, Wayne Brady, Titus Burgess, Kevin Chamberlain, Andrew Barth Feldman, Adam Lambert, Priscilla Lopez, Ashley Park, Andre DeShields, Mary Testa, I think that's everyone. And so the Ratatouille musical, TikTok musical came together. It was in benefit to the Actors Fund. We raised over $2 million, which was fantastic. Um, and most importantly, it brought everyone so much joy. Again, Broadway was dark. New York was largely empty. We had a takeover in Times Square where we had uh, signage and outdoor presence that we would never have in quote unquote normal times. We had a marquee up of Ratatouille. We had taxi tops. You know, it was it was really this kind of wild and crazy and beautiful moment. And um, when I think back to it, what was most inspiring was how in this time of total darkness, creation still managed to find its way. And um, what emerged was a project that none of us, of course, could have imagined, but really celebrated um, creators and, and, and the way that we look at stories and storytelling and the way that we can leverage the digital space and technology to make things um, and, and give voice to creators of all ilks. Um, one of my favorite parts of, of Ratatouille is towards the end and it uh, flashes over to the kids who are doing the choreography was that was put forth and and they're dancing and jetaying and everyone's singing you know Emily's ode and it's it was just a really beautiful magical time and was truly a point of light I think to so many and certainly was a point of light to me and a, a memory that I I hold very very close to my heart so what's your favorite song well the, I mean there's there's what 12 yeah 12 songs, 12 songs. um I you know the, the ode to Remy, the Remy, the Ratatouille, which everyone is now unfortunately going to have in their ear as an earworm, so my apologies in advance, um, is is what everyone points to. 
but I think that the best song is Anyone Can Cook because it's all about how, you know, you don't need to really know what you're doing. You don't need to necessarily have the ingredients. You don't really need much more than just the intention and the dream and the desire to make the thing come to life. And um, when Kevin Chamberlain recorded it in his kitchen in L.A., and had his chef hat on. And, and you have to understand our costume designer, who was phenomenal, was you know making orders on Amazon and sending these things out to these actors because everything, this is depths of the pandemic. But anyway, so he had his chef's hat on and, and he's singing these lyrics. And, uh, and it was just such a, uh, an anthem, I think, to everyone that anyone can cook, anyone can create, anyone can make a thing. You know, Broadway is is lauded as this kind of almost sacred space that has so many barriers to entry as a performer, as a producer, even as an audience member. You know, it's it's expensive. It's sometimes difficult for people to get to New York. You know, there's a, a lot of barriers and Ratatouille broke down all of those barriers, including and most notably and most importantly, I think, what it takes to have your voice heard. And when Kevin sings Anyone Can Cook, um, it just, it, it, to me, it just felt like this, as I said, an anthem or a, a, a cry, a, a rallying cry to everyone to say, you know what, we can all do this and we should all do this. And even though the pandemic is over, for me personally, as an artist and as a maker um, and as a supporter of that making, uh, that is something that sticks with me. I, I, I think that it is so important to give voice to creation at all levels. Let's hear a clip from Kevin Chamberlain singing Anyone Can Cook. Anyone can cook, anyone can cook. All you have to do is look inside yourself. Anyone can cook, you could even write a book. It could sit right next to mine there on the shelf. Don't let a soul try to tell you how to broil or to braise a casserole. All right, so I just want to talk to you really quickly about, about doing this during the pandemic. You said mm-hmm. it brought you a lot of joy. You mm-hmm. said it's, it's um, one of your or it, it is the thing that resonates most with with you. You know, every a lot of people were creating digital content right. uh, during the pandemic. John Krasinski, some good news, that show that he was doing like every week. Um, right. You know, there's some really great feel-good things uh, happening during that time. Uh, did you, I mean, did it... Did it kind of pull you personally out of the depths of the pandemic and the mindset and, and get you back in that creative flow that I think a lot of people are struggling to find that creative flow during that time? It certainly did. And I think we collectively as a team crashed afterwards because we were so fueled by being in community with one another digitally. And I don't think in those 31 days, you know, it's a blur, but... <laughs> We, we literally slept for a few hours at a time. It, it was like having a newborn or something where you're just up with this project all the time. And in the end, the video editing piece of it all and the timing of that was extraordinarily difficult because this aired um, on New Year's Eve. So this was the whole idea was that this was the way to begin a new year, to turn the page on 2020, which was so horrible for so many people. Um, and so we had the challenge of the 31 days. And on top of that, we had the challenge of the holidays. And even though it was pandemic time, people were still celebrating and, and work was shutting down. So um, I, if I recall correctly, we had on our video editing team a team in New York, a team in Germany, and a team in L.A., and they would just p- keep passing the baton so that in the final editing phase, which I feel like was maybe, I don't know, four or five days, it was really quick. Um, we were literally around the clock. So it was absolutely exhausting, but so, so wonderful. And yes, it did to me inspire so much hope um, and, uh, and, and, and was, as I said, just a point of light. Um, but when we were through with it, of course, it was the question of, you know, now what do we do? How, how do we how do we not even replicate this? Because Ratatouille was light, lightning in a bottle for sure. But how we do we continue to harness this energy of creation and how do we bring that into other projects that we do? So um, 
it was great. It was we had a we took a nap and then got up and said, OK, what's next? Um, and 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 off we went. Before we jump on to what you did next, mm-hmm. um, which is also incredibly impressive, I, I want to stick with movies that kind of have Broadway crossover mm-hmm. for a minute. Um, and and have, I have not been able to have this conversation with somebody who comes from the producing side of mm-hmm. Broadway. Um, and I often wonder this myself. Um, what these days, uh, you know, obviously with the success of Lion King way back, right. um, a lot of movies started coming to Broadway and, and, you know, there were some fits and starts with like Spider-Man and things like that mm-hmm. that didn't work. Um, and there's a lot of things that really did work. Um, I wonder from the producing side, you're seeing you're seeing this IP come in. You're seeing mm-hmm. these these pitches, these this potential uh, shows that are being pitched to you and your company when you're there. How much of that is coming from movies and, and how much of what's produced today, looking at this new Back to the Future mu- musical that's right. coming out uh, and, and this new Life of Pi musical, right. um, how much of that is kind of dictated by or coming from or even leaning into movies and the success of movies as a launching point and taking into account that piece uh, when taking the risk and gamble to go forward with uh, actual producing of mm-hmm. these shows like Waitress or Mean Girls mm-hmm. or Beetlejuice or mm-hmm. I mean the the list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. It's such a great question and one that we've grappled with a lot uh, in my opinion familiarity with the source the, the the original IP is such a leg up in the world of producing and uh, exploiting that IP in another way. I think Lion King is actually you know, one of the best examples of that. Because when I say taking a previously existing piece of IP and bringing it to Broadway, it's not about taking the movie as it is known in the public consciousness and replicating that and having the live version of that. Um, If you've been to Disney World and have seen the live stage version of Lion King, it is much more of the movie coming to life. Um, Julie Taymor's production, which I had, the, this dates me horribly, but I had the incredible privilege of being a PA on that production when it was in New York and then out in Minneapolis. Year, 30 yeah. year anniversary this, Thanks, this past Tony. year. Thanks, yeah. yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do the math. Um, so, but I saw that um, come to life. And what was astonishing about that is that uh, my preconceived notion of what Lion King was going to be was based upon Beauty and the Beast, which is much more of a expected uh, translation of something that exists on the screen going to the live stage. What Julie Taymor did with Lion King was wildly creative, wildly unexpected, and yet had that touch point of a story that people were familiar with. And um, I think that storytelling is storytelling is storytelling. If, if a story works on the page, it can work on the screen, it can work live, it can work in all sorts of ways. Um, now, that is not to say that all of those exploitations are going to be equally successful, but a good story has the right teeth to be able to make into something more. So the, the more successful um, productions, live stage exploitations of a IP that originally lived as film, I think take the original story, the experience of seeing it on the screen, and just twist it a little bit. Yeah. You know, Beetlejuice is that, of course. Um, uh, you know, a, a, most of them are. I, I think the literal uh, translations are less exciting to an audience and, again, harken back more to almost like a theme park experience mm-hmm. versus what people expect on Broadway, which is, uh, you know, an artistic and unexpected, unexpected bent to uh, the story that they know and love. So, I mean, to answer your question... It's a huge asset and a lot of time and energy is spent looking at um, pieces of IP that may have been dormant for whatever reason, um, but were beloved at the time. And then looking at those stories and seeing if they can be told now. And of course, stories now um, 
may not resonate the way that they did then. And um, can you get someone in the room who can look at that original IP and reimagine it so that it can still harken back to the source, but also feel new and fresh? So it's it's a very delicate dance. You know, some people um, believe that, uh, you know, Broadway um, may go in a direction where it's essentially uh, flagship stores for IP, um, which, you know, just the way that, uh, you know, the Gucci boutique in New York is is certainly its flagship is not making any money per se in terms of their individual operation, but it's a marketing and branding um, a presence uh, more than anything else. And, you um, and I don't think that that's where Broadway is going, uh, by the way. But it's just there. there is that version of it. I think that what Broadway does is get creative and, and takes titles and stories that people know and, and makes them fresh and different. And then people want to see them over and over. And of course, you know, live stage allows the audience to experience things in a very ephemeral way. You know, you see it once and it's never going to be exactly the same. And um, there's something really beautiful about that, too. And as you bring in artists and, and casts and directors and creatives that are looking at stories, they can um, have their unique take, which which gives the story kind of a, an eternal life that I think is is very special. So let's let's talk about a couple of the other projects that you've worked on. Sure. But first, a little background about you. Um, I I know that you yourself have a history uh, as a singer. I do. And I, <laughs> I, I believe you also taught singing, right? I did for a brief period of time. Yeah, when my kids were little, um, I had some friends who had kids that were a little older, and they said, can you help um, my son or daughter on auditions and everything else? And and I did, and one thing led to another, and um, I started to teach, which was fantastic when I had little ones because, um, you know, my heart was always in uh, the arts. I jumped back and forth between producing and performing pretty much the entirety of my uh, of my career. But it's um, but yes, I did have a brief foray into the teaching side, which was a lot of fun, a I lot bet. of fun, and I and bet. to see the kids, by the way, downstairs here at the music school um it's it harkens back to that and i always have this uh yeah i say to tom foley who so beautifully and masterfully runs the school downstairs that if he's ever in need of a of a sub he knows where to find me that's amazing do you, do you ever <laughs> these days kind of uh work out those those singing muscles and and stretch your your singing legs i do i do. do i mean i i um during my time at seaview um, the the powers that be very generously were supportive of that piece of my life. Um, I had a kind of a five-week sabbatical of sorts when I was in Mamma Mia at Ivoryton Playhouse. Um, I, uh, for the past few years, with the exception of the pandemic, have gone down to sing concerts at the Sanibel Music Festival, which has been fantastic. I've worked with Opera Theater of Connecticut. Um, I do concerts on occasion. So um, yes, I I do usually find some time to to flex that muscle a little bit. And and frankly, as a producer, um, as a executive director. Um, on the kind of the business side of the business, it's important for me to get back into the saddle in terms of being the creative because it reminds me of the importance of stewardship of artists and and really speaking and understanding, you know, their needs in a way that um, is is wildly respectful of their process and the incredible amount of vulnerability and courage it takes to get up there and do your thing and show yourself to the world, um, whether it's singing or dance or acting, whatever it is. I mean, it's it's. I I am reminded of it when I get back up on stage, and so for that, I am super grateful. Yeah, it's humbling. Yeah, uh, it is. It, it's nice to uh, get back to basics, but also from the business side of things, you do get kind of jaded and lost and and look at things from a totally different perspective than you should. So going back to be the artist every once in a while. Is, yeah. I like that. That's that's a really nice, positive thing to yeah. do. Yeah, I love it. It's perspective. Yes, it keeps, feeds my soul. Keeps it alive. It, absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk about these two shows that you produced um, during your time on Broadway. Very <laughs> very different shows, but I'm, I, I imagine in some ways similar. Um, they're, they're 
their groundbreaking and their button pushing mm-hmm. shows for mm-hmm. sure in two very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is uh, Slave Play mm-hmm. and POTUS. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, uh, slave Play comes first, yes. correct? Let's talk about Slave Play. Yes, so Slave Play was on Broadway twice, um, uh, once before the pandemic and once after the pandemic, um, and two, two different productions, um, and was a, uh, is a, a phenomenal play by the great Jeremy O'Harris, who is a relatively new voice in the American theater. He was um, discovered uh, largely um, by a Greg Noble, who runs CV Productions, and um, he Slave Play was at Yale, and then it was up at the O'Neill, um, and uh, then it was down at New York Theater Workshop, and I didn't enter into the picture until, I think, mid-run of the New York Theater Workshop production, and um, you know, slave play is a, 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 a to say it's a catalyst for conversation doesn't do it justice. Slave play is a play that sticks with you forever. Um, love it or hate it, it is a play that changes you, changes audiences. Um, Jeremy would say that his his job was to make you laugh and have your mouth wide open and then he would shove into your mouth what he what he wanted to and what he what he wanted to do was cause us all to think think about where we um, stand in the world in terms of our own prejudice and bias um, uh, you know in, in in terms of the history of this country the current state of our country the way that we often, assume ourselves to be doing the right thing, but in fact, our, 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 our behavior is reflecting some, some very deeply um, implanted biases and prejudices that we may not be aware of. It's a phenomenal piece, and um, Slave Play it was about what happened um, at the Golden and then at the August Wilson following the pandemic, but it was also about the responsibility of of having a place for the conversations around the play to happen, both literally and figuratively, uh, because the you know the play is divided essentially into three acts: work, process, and exercise. Exercise, not exercise. And um, it was our duty as producers bringing this play into the world to create a space for contemplation, consideration, education, and all the rest. So um, a lot of my work specifically as it relates to slave play, both both at the Golden and in the August Wilson, was making sure that there was, to the best of our ability, a way for audience to process what they saw, to talk, to learn, to be in community with one another. Um, we were uh, asked by Jeremy to create a blackout performance, which was a performance that was inviting only um, people who self-identify as being black. And his um, impetus for that ask was that he believed that his play should be seen um, not under the white gaze, should be seen and, and understood and processed. Um, by people in the theater in a way that could only happen with an all-black identifying audience. And so we were uh, privileged to be able to do that work and bring that to life. And that since has happened around the world, actually, which is fantastic. Um, and, you know, we we continue to really be pushing ourselves and thinking about how uh, this play is more than just buying a ticket and sitting in the audience consuming the consuming the piece and then and then leaving how, how can we how can we further the work that inspired Jeremy to write the play in the first place so it was um, it was a wild and wonderful ride and oh my goodness what what a privilege to be a part of that um, both both round one and round two and of course coming back into the theater post pandemic uh, you know the the contemplation was what do we do to get people back um and there was so much uh, so many barriers of course the the fears of of health and safety but also people's change of behavior and habits um and and you know it's it's very easy to kind of slide into the sweatpants and couch and netflix kind of model so we needed to pe- get people out of that and and worked on uh, the production at the august wilson 
to create experience around the play itself. We transformed the lobby of the August Wilson Theater into a lounge, um, which was really phenomenal. Uh, we would often activate the uh, merch booth as a DJ booth, and we had um, soft seating areas around the lounge. We had Jeremy's play and the work of 12 other notable black playwrights featured in a collection that we called the Golden Collection, which was also um, and still is in libraries and community centers in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, Guam. Um, but the idea was to bring audience in and provide a place for conversation that was comfortable, that was inviting, that was inspiring, both before and after the play itself. And, uh, and that was felt so right in this post-pandemic world as we challenged ourselves to think about, you know, how we're going to get audiences back and, and give them the why as to, um, you know, why they should return. So, yes, it was it was a wild and wonderful ride for sure. And I'm interested to hear how you took your experiences, you know, with this show and with mm -hmm. POTUS, which we'll talk about in a second, mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of what you've learned from those experiences that you're you're kind of excited to bring and test here at the United but before we talk about that, mm -hmm. um, the other show, POTUS, um, kind of a different tone um, completely from Slave Play. Um, let's talk about this one. This It was so fun. <laughs> it was so fun. Um, they, so the, the name of the play is POTUS, or Behind Every Great Dumbass Are Seven Women Trying to Keep Him Alive. And the title kind of says it all. So this, another br brilliant playwright, um, Selena Fillinger, who was a, um, you know, this kind of wunderkind. She was 28 years old at the time that the play was um, put into the pipeline for Broadway. Um, she was paired, so so new, and, and Selena is this incredibly creative, vivacious, um, brilliant woman who just kind of, came onto the scene with a uh, an intention and a message and a purpose that could not be ignored but this is this is not typical to take someone who hasn't kind of been put through the paces and the normal processes of uh, someone coming onto the Broadway scene and just throwing them right onto Broadway and and notably at the Schubert Theater which is this iconic, Broadway theater. So um, it was so cool to have that tension between the new and the old. And then, of course, we were so fortunate to have her paired with Susan Stroman. And I'm sure everyone out there knows Susan Stroman. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, director. And um, she and Selena together just dreamt up this raucous farce. And it's um, the story of POTUS is the story of these seven women around a fictitious president of the United States and how they are just scrambling day after day in this one day in particular to prop up this man who really doesn't deserve to be propped up at all. And um, it's, it's hilarious, it's uproarious, it's fun. There's a mega mix in the end. I mean, it was Lily Cooper, Leah Delaria, Rachel Drash, Julianne Huff, Susie Nakamura, Julie White, Vanessa Williams. So like what a cast, right? And then what a director, what a theater, what a everything. And, um, and, but it had, you know, it had a very important message to it. It wasn't just farce and fun. It was about how, um, you know, there's a the, the misogyny that exists, the patriarchy that exists. It exists, and women um, have to grapple with this all the time as it relates to being in rooms where there is power. Um, whether that room is the Oval Office, whether it's the office of a Fortune 500 company, whether it's even your home. You know, it's 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 the things we do to keep it all going, and the exhaustion that comes from that. And, you know, we, it was largely a, a female producing team and almost fully a female identifying creative team. And um, my goodness, we got it done, you know? And it was just such a fantastic process because 
this was coming out of pandemic times-ish. You know, it was still, it was April 22, so not very long ago, um, but still a lot of Zooms. And you had these women, very powerful women on the Zooms with kids running behind them and like, you know, hold on, I've got to do whatever that I need to do in my life to make my life work. And it was so empowering for me and I think so empowering for all of us to... Um, you know, recognize that this play was a story that needed to be told, um, that it would bring audiences great joy, and that, uh, you know, and that we just had to do it. And we did. And it was awesome. It was awesome. It closed in August of 22. Um, it was a very successful run at the Schubert. Celine is amazing. I can't wait to see what she does next. And um, the play was just truly, truly a joy to work on. But, you know, it's interesting because even in talking about it and Ratatouille and Slave Play and POTUS, it feels like they're worlds apart. But actually, you know, it's it's it, it, to me, it speaks to the same underlying purpose of art and creation. Um, a, a colleague and dear friend of mine who I admire so much always says that the arts are the midwives of the moment. And I use that all the time because I believe it in my gut. Um, arts are the midwives of the moment. And what that means is that the arts allow us to process our human experience, to understand empathy, to understand our journey, to understand the journey of others, to appreciate the intersections of that, and also how sometimes the journeys are wildly different and we can't assume that our human experience is necessarily the same of the person next to us, even though they may look like us or talk like us or, or, or live, live next door. So, um, and I think POTUS, Ratatouille, and Slave Play all you know, we're, we're really awesome midwives. You know, <laughs> if I had another kid, I would want to hire that midwife because um, beautifully ushered in parts of this incredible complexity of, of being, being human, especially in these really difficult moments that we're all going through. So, um, so they, it, it all makes sense in my mind, <laughs> which is kind of crazy considering how disparate they all are. So speaking of that, speaking of the arts, speaking of, I mean, these are three very, very different projects, mm -hmm. um, which really show the range and scope of, you know, audiences and development and everything. I'm, I'm wondering now you're here at the United, you're mm -hmm. the executive director here. You're, you're kind of, you know, we're, we're still very new. You're kind of shepherding in our, uh, I wouldn't even say our next phase. I would say our phase, mm -hmm. um, so I wonder all of these experiences on Broadway, producing, uh, your personal experience, singing, um, being a part of all of this for so long, what are you excited about here? What, what, you know, outside of what you just said about the arts and the importance of the mm -hmm. arts and bringing the arts and, and arts access, what, what here at the United are you most excited for and, and looking forward to and, and what, what lessons learned on Broadway do you think are, are most valuable now for your position here, which is a far different animal? You know, we we are <laughs> yeah. a film center. We are doing performances. We're doing live music, things like that. Um, we are not doing fully produced productions. Uh, you know, we're not doing much theater. We're doing occasional theater, but we're not producing it. Um, mm -hmm. We're presenting it in some ways. Uh, and then we have this great music school with all right. of these young kids running around it's quite a di different atmosphere, but I mean, what are you, what are you excited and jazzed about here? Oh my gosh, so much! So, I, I wasn't um, looking for an exit at all in my Broadway life and career. Um, I had an incredible team of people led by an incredible human being who's really quite brilliant. Um, it, it was all very, very good, um, and I am so grateful for all of it. Um, when this opportunity came to my attention through a chance meeting that my father had um, with someone who knew someone <laughs> up at the United, uh, my initial, you know, thought was, well, that sounds interesting, and I'll have to go up there and see what's going on. Um, and then I started to explore a little bit about the United and Westerly. I have some roots here and um, that I grew up going to Dotson Boatyard in Stonington and 
we had this tiny little boat and would sail over to Napa Tree Beach and, you know, crawl over the the uh, the barracks there on Napa Tree Beach and go into the ocean house when it was spooky and there were like feral cats and stuff. So again, dating myself, but I, I do have a connection a little bit with this community. Um, but the the thing that excited me and the thing that made me stop and say, wait a minute, I think I need to explore this more was that the piece that I was looking for at 47 years old was work that I could do where I would plant a seed and I could water the seed and I could move the pot around based on where the sun was hitting that day and I could prune it as needed and fertilize it as needed and hopefully watch it grow and understand that what I was growing um, was going to hopefully outlast me and 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 leave hopefully a ripple effect that will improve people's lives which sounds somewhat pedestrian and and um and 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 uninspired but the ability to do work where i'm directly impacting a community um to do that work with a team of extraordinary people like yourself um is just it 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 made all the sense in the world to me as I continued to dig in. And in terms of the day-to-day, what I did at Seaview was take ideas and bring them to life. I, I liked to say, and I still do, an idea is only as good as its execution. And there's a lot of brilliant ideas, but it takes a lot to make those things happen. And so fundamentally, whether it's doing a, um, a dance party on Times Square for Black Friday or you know, bringing something to life here in the gallery, um, it's the same thing. It's taking an idea and, and making it happen. And so I think that in terms of your question of what are the skill sets that, you know, wh- what did I learn in my Broadway work that I can apply here? Everything. Most importantly, I think, the ability to be really nimble um, and to be looking at what's going on in, in the very micro level, to be able to zoom up to that 10,000 foot view, to be able to pivot on a dime and to be able to be brave enough to really contemplate all the possibilities to push oneself to creatively think around a problem to you know continue to interrogate a situation and think how can we do this better at Seaview we like to say it's not how what we make it's how we make it and that is something that I I carry with me from from that job as well you know making the audience experience unique and and better and you know making sure that when people come into the theater, they're greeted and they're welcomed and they understand that this was built for them. This is their home in the community for the arts and we welcome them, um, no matter whether they're coming in for film or live music or music classes or, or visual art or whatever it is. Um, it's it's making sure that that experience is extraordinary, making sure that artists are taken care of, that they can come to a place like the United and imagine um, how they their creative work might live and breathe in the space in a way that perhaps other venues can't um, satisfy. And and to be able to listen to our community and understand what it is that they want to see. You know, how do we how do we tell stories of the community itself and the people within it? You know, our work with Mystic Aquarium, with the March of the Penguins, I think speaks. To you know, the, the this is a, a story that needs to be told. Uh, the plight of these animals and the critical work that is needed in terms of aquatic conservation. Well, we can tell those stories because we could do it in film. We can do it live. We can do it in arts exhibitions. We can do it in talkbacks. And and you know that that to me is a wonderful model to kind of emulate as we go forward here, as we look at community and um, being able to make sure that stories are told. We can amplify those stories, and we can continue to, in fact, bring people together around the arts which in my mind is more critical than ever so you know again it's um two very very different worlds um it's i I do think i still have a bit of whiplash between the two but fundamentally the spirit and the drive and the intention is exactly the same Uh, one happens to be you know nyc and one happens to be here in westerly rhode island well, I can speak for our entire staff and say that it's been great working with you. I mean, you started in November, um, so yes. you've not been here long. And <laughs> we've already done so much. There's so much planned. Um, we you. are moving very fast. Uh, we all love working with you. 
Um, and, and, you know, to bring it back to Broadway and touch on your, your beautiful plant metaphor there, mm-hmm. I hope we are not uh, the Seymour who's going to eat you alive. <laughs> um, but no, really, it's, I mean, it's, it's been amazing. And I think, uh, I think you bring so much to the United Theater. Um, these experiences, these incredible projects that we just talked about, I think it's important for people to know those projects, mm-hmm. know where you're coming from. Um, and I'm excited, and I think everybody else listening to this podcast should be excited because, uh, you know, what you're going to bring to Westerly, to this region, to this theater is, is going to be remarkable. Um, and, you know, those projects from Broadway um, are a great example of, of that kind of, of leadership and project and uh, I guess I would say really good curatorial sense mm-hmm. You know, you, all of those projects are so far different, but mm-hmm. they're challenging in, in ways that are really important. They're, they're critical conversation points in time. Um, and I think we need that. We need that intersection between those conversations and mm-hmm. art. And I think really the, the whole mission here, uniting the community through the arts, uh, is that. Um, it's, it's being that piece of the conversation and intersection. And I think there's nobody better to bring that intersection than you. So we're very excited to have you here. Um, and it's been great talking about these events. It has. Um, Thank you for making the time to talk about them. I you know, must return the compliment and say that to be so beautifully embraced by this incredible team of humans here at the United, I, I couldn't be more grateful. And this community generally is really extraordinary. And um, so I am, I am full of gratitude and optimism and excitement for all that is ahead. So thank you so very much. There's so much more to come. And you will be a future guest on this podcast, oh, I'm good. sure, many, many <laughs> times. And we'll talk about all kinds of different things. Great. Um, Can't and, wait. You know, I'll, I'll force you to watch some more of these movies that you have not watched <laughs> yet or heard of. That I'll get there. Like everything, everywhere, all at once. And, and hopefully um, you can come back and talk about some of those movies as well. I us. would love that. I would love that. <laughs> okay. Anytime. Great. Thank you, Carly. Uh, until next week. No, until two weeks from now, we'll be back. Uh, and thank you for listening. Thank you.